You're listening to the Minds I Like podcast, sponsored by Event to Be Wellness, all natural products sourced from Grenada and Kador's natural juices. Paula Holland has been researching mind enhancement techniques for 10 years. Her first mind enhancement program, Mind Mansion, was instrumental in helping clients to profoundly shift their mindsets in positive game-changing ways. During her studies, she noticed the subversive side of the mind, namely mind control, and how mind control was being used to negatively impact individuals and corporately in people groups. In examining people from her racial background, Paula recognized clear patterns of mind control that have been used on black people and began working on methods to break the control and use the mind enhancement techniques she had discovered to redirect her own mindset and help others do the same. She now shares this vision of a redirected mindset with her tribe. Paula lives in Northern California. Well, my background was not even in health and wellness to begin with. I started right out of college in the the whole marketing world, all high tech. I'm in California. I'm right in the heart of Silicon Valley. So that's how I, I kind of got started in this whole marketing profession. After doing that for a number of years and working on the agency side, some corporate, I decided to start consulting. And I had my own little marketing consultancy for a couple of years, and I had a long-term client. I was getting kind of bored with what I was doing and decided maybe I should go in-house full-time somewhere. And Mm -hmm. I had a friend who was working at a tier one tech company, and she got me an interview there for a senior manager position. So I was really excited about this. I had not interviewed in a couple of years because I I had several clients that I was juggling and I had one long-term client. So I was out of practice. I got to the interview. It started at 9.30 in the morning and it was an all-day interview. So it was 9.30 to 3, back to back to back to back interviews. And I did not realize how out of practice for interviewing I really was until I started in the process And I kid you not, I bombed with every single person I met with. I just pretty much fell flat on my face in the interview process. Mm. And when I left there, I was humiliated. I was driving home and thinking to myself, I have never had interviews that went so, so south, so bad, so quickly, and one after the other. This will never happen again. I don't know what I'm going to do to fix this, but I'm going to fix it. And so uh, that weekend, I got an email from a recruitment firm, and it was mostly a newsy newsletter kind of email, and that had an article in there, the top 10 interview questions. I looked it over, and like eight of the questions out of the 10, I had been asked during my interview process where I had bombed so badly. So I took the time, and I wrote out answers to each of those 10 questions, and that little exercise took me like three hours just under three hours to do that. And I realized how ill-prepared I had been going into that interview and how I had blown a really good opportunity, but I was determined I was gonna stay practiced. I made a decision in my heart that no matter what kind of offer an opportunity I have for an interview, 
even if I don't want it, and if I know going in, I don't want it, I'm going to take it anyways, so I can get the practice. So absolutely, that mindset of practice kind of kicked in from that really bad negative experience of bombing so badly in an interview that I for a job I really wanted. Kind of fast forward a few months, I was having dinner with a, with a colleague of mine, and we were talking about our dating woes. I said to him, you know, kind of with the mindset of practice, I said, you know, I should create some sort of a group where people who are dating can can date each other when they're not really interested in each other. That way they can get practice. So when they do meet the one, you know, they'll they'll be all practiced up and they'll they won't blow it. And he thought it was a terrible idea. And I said, yeah, I'm going to do it anyways. I was already a member of meetup.com and I for just fun stuff, you know, finding people to go hiking with and that sort of thing. So I started my own meetup group. And within a month, I had over 300 members. We just basically had regular like bi-monthly dating events. And my background in marketing, I, I was really accustomed to writing all kinds of surveys, questionnaires. And so I created a dating survey for people who had gone on dates with each other and they could give feedback for what went right, what went wrong, recommendations and that sort of thing. And that kind of opened the door to me coaching. I started date coaching from that group. So that's what kind mm. of kind of one of those serendipitous experiences that led to something that I wasn't even thinking about, you know, going in. Wow, that was so wonderful. So when you looked back and you started to think how you actually got into the line of what you were doing, because you're already creative, you're already connecting and relating to people, and then you fixed something or you opened up something that you noticed was a niche. So did you always have that eye, well, based on your marketing background, to really look at things and find solutions? So coming from the agency side, I was trained to do that. I don't, I can't really say I naturally had that ability, but mm -hmm. I was trained into doing that. And I learned how to apply that training to other things. So it wasn't just something I was going to do for clients in the tech world. If I could see, you know, an opportunity or something I can apply a mindset to that would impact my life or somebody else's life, it's like, by all means, I was going to do that. But my, the actual training to do that, I think, came from the workplace. Mm -hmm. And how did it lead into researching mind enhancement techniques? So, again, that was one of those things where I just kind of fell into something. And I, this was roughly around, all around the same time that a lot of these things were happening with the Bay Area Practice Daters meetup group that I started and the coaching. One night, I had a dream. And... It was, was not a very linear dream, as dreams rarely are. I started like in the middle. I was in this house that had multiple floors. And when I opened up each room, like in a, in a hallway, there was something like terrifying. Like it was kind of ghostly, kind of a spooky dream. And as I was going up and down the floors, I was looking at the walls and I realized it was like the structure of a brain. And I didn't know what that meant. And then like the next moment, I'm standing outside of this house that I had previously been in. And it was like this gigantic mansion. And I realized I was just inside of a brain and was probably my brain. Because of some of the things that I was seeing, I was seeing people from my past and I was seeing kind of ghosts and really weird things. And I woke up and I didn't know what that meant, but it became like an obsession of mine. 
and I started just journaling when I'm when I'm kind of going through things I'll often write to kind of process things it's my way of processing and I I guess you could call it journaling but it's just my mm -hmm. way of analyzing what I'm going through and through mm -hmm. several weeks of analyzing this dream because usually when I have a dream it's like oh that was weird let's move on but this one it felt different and I couldn't move on and I just kept you know writing and analyzing what this really brief dream meant and mm -hmm. at the end of that I kind of put together through my analysis I put together a process and I ended up calling it mind mansion and it was basically going to each and one of those rooms and confronting what was inside forgiving the people who'd hurt me or had offended me or done something negative and me forgiving or asking for their forgiveness for the things that I did life is never just a one-way street and mm -hmm. I continued refining that and it, it took me about a year and I I kept you know just kind of going over it and practicing it and I ran it by you know a couple of friends and they started to get really significant results I had one friend who had been a really bad relationship he had got of his parents were both cancer he had gone home to take care of them he had been out of work and he was kind of in a wreck when he did this and he said it made him going through the whole mind mansion process made him feel so much better he did end up finding a job within a month of completing it he ended up mm -hmm. getting he met he met someone and you know ended up getting married it, it just really things in his life just really started lining up. And I thought, well, maybe that's a fluke. So I tried it with a couple of other people and it really did kind of unstuck for a lack of a better term for whatever situation they were in. Many of them were in bad relationship situations like with a significant other and it really unstuck them. I, I had one girl, she was very young and she had never been able to have a relationship that was a healthy significant other relationship. It was always something where she was being used, tossed aside, and she couldn't get over that. And I had a hard time understanding why she was going through this. She was very, very pretty. She was the kind of kind of girl that, you know, most guys would, you know, kill to get with. And she just couldn't mm -hmm. seem to, to make anything work. And she went through this. She went through the Mind Mansion process. And at the end of it, again, about a month later, she met somebody who she had had known in high school he was much older than her. I think she was a freshman and he was a senior and they reconnected and like really, really hit it off. And long story short, she married him within about two years of their meeting and she's pregnant with her first child. Wow. That's amazing. So can you summarize a little bit or just give us an example of what people see or what they visualize in order to challenge those thoughts and well there's also some emotions that go with that so what would be one example of one room that they would enter and would have to face so this is written in first person it's actually like a story where you're a part of the story so the process is okay. i've when i was going through the analysis i asked all of these questions, like the most negative incidences, the worst thing someone has ever said to me, the worst thing I ever said to myself, what is, you know, issues that I've had with friends when, when somebody left me or, you know, those kinds of questions. And then 
the answer is what you get from the person, which makes it unique. And so when I wrote my mansion, I wrote it again, that first person narrative. And for each question, I left placeholders in the book. So when I interview a client, they're giving me their answers. I put their answers in a database that I built and those answers go directly into the book. So every single book that's made, every Mind Mansion book is unique. So to the person mm -hmm. who's been interviewed. And so you're reading your own story. It's your own issues and things. And so like one of the rooms that you would go into is going to address negative incidents from your childhood and your family with relationships mm -hmm. that you've had with friends, with a significant other. And it's very comprehensive in that one room. I do have a separate room that focuses on only significant other relationships. But, you know, that, that first room deals with negative incidents and things that you've happened that have happened to you. And a big component of it is forgiveness, forgiveness of the person who hurt or offended you, forgiveness of yourself sometimes for allowing yourself to be in that situation or forgiving yourself for holding on to that situation. And so there's a lot of steps that, that go into it that I'm kind of leading out. Basically going into each room and facing like this incident A, incident B in another room, incident C in another room and doing the forgiveness things. And then I have this little process where the person has this invisible kind of a red elixir in a little spray bottle and they spray it on, you know, sometimes the room is full of these depictions like murals of the negative things that have happened to you and you spray. She ended up doing the Mayan Mansion. I interviewed her, put in her answers, the database built her book. And she, when I debriefed with her afterwards, you know, she was saying that it was a little bit difficult to face a lot of these negative situations. She said she, she cried openly during some of the process because it is, you're, you're facing things that have happened in your life that were really ugly, dealing with that, in, in forgiving the person, forgiving, sometimes things happen. I know that she had a relative that was murdered and we went through a process of forgiving the people who had murdered her cousin and that was really painful for her. But the second half of the Mind Mansion book deals with creating. So you mm -hmm. take all of the rooms that you've been into and you're creating from scratch the future that you want. So you're, I'm asking questions like, what's the most positive incident that hasn't happened to you yet that you would like to happen in the future? And you know, the person gives that, that goes into the, the book, which goes, you know, it's the room that they're, they're creating, the, the murals that they're creating, things that they want with the significant other things that they want in business. So basically creating things that haven't happened yet. And at the end of it, you know, dealing with the ugly stuff for the first few days and the last few days, you know, dealing with something really positive I think it's it's just kind of like taking an old building, doing a, a demo and rebuilding it from scratch and having something beautiful. Mm -hmm. That sounds amazing. And in terms of the steps that they need to apply, is this something that happens in a sequence or is it something that's a little bit more fluid? It just happens naturally and then you evolve eventually. It's, I guess it's a little bit more fluid and it's just flowing, following the flow of the book. So you're starting with negative incidences, negative, negative thought patterns, um, negative significant other relationships, negative spirituality, and then you're going back and you're creating positive thinking, positive incidences that haven't happened yet, positive spirituality. It deals with money and, and some other things. 
you're just basically reading. There's nothing for the person to do other than to kind of follow what's prescribed in the book, which is just like reading a fantasy or, or reading a, an adventure story, I guess would be a better way of putting it. Mm-hmm. So then in your way of helping people, you know, you were doing this for a good while and then you noticed the subserve, the subversive side of the mind. Yes. And, you know, namely mind control and how mind control was used to negatively impact individuals and in large groups. How did you discover that information and what led you to want to take action and start doing something about that? So I I took my first African-American studies in college as an elective. I didn't have any studies on African-American history in my K through 12. And so this was my first time hearing it in college. I had a very, I guess you could say, I don't want to say radical, but let's just say passionate instructor. He was himself African-American and my eyes were just kind of open to the injustice that had happened into our, in our community. That kind of just led me of an interest of just finding out more. And over the years, I've just always been interested. We'll read books, history books. I find them very sad and, and very disappointing, but I never made the connection to the actual mind control until I started working on mind mansion. Again, that's positively enhancing your mind. I don't look at it as control, but reading and understanding how mind control works. I actually had a friend who had been under mind control. Her family had put her and her twin sister in a program at Stanford Research Center. And they did quite a bit of mind control on her. I grew up with this girl. And so I didn't know that she was going through this as a child or as a teenager. But later when the mind control started breaking and she was telling me what she had been through, I was really shocked and and horrified. And I started researching on my own more about the types of mind control that she had been talking about, namely like monarch mind control, MK ultra mind control. And the more I looked at it and, and saw how it worked, I kind of make the connection of African Americans. And I came to the realization that, you know, even though they talk about World War II and Nazi criminals like Joseph Mengele being you know, the, the kind of the fathers or grandfathers of mind control and MK Ultra, I realized the real mind control started during the enslavement time when, you know, processes were put in place for, you know, rules, laws were passed that were just passed against Black people, you know, in, in the Americas to make sure that they stayed in that subservient mindset and, and under the control of, of their ruling class. Mm-hmm. And, and as I really looked at this and I looked at how I, I was, I was looking at all kinds of documents, things I would find online, books I've read, and I would read like what the process was to kind of break someone down to make like a super soldier or to make somebody do something. And it was always the same thing. You know, you, you do a lot of physical or mental abuse, you torture them or you torture someone in front of them. You start training the behavior when they start picking up on the behavior, you reward them. When they start doing it automatically, you reward them more. And if they kind of slip or it looks like they're going back to their old ways, you start at the beginning with the abuse again to just kind of keep doing it. 
And when I looked at methods that were used in slavery times, you know, the slave seasoning, other sorts of, of you know, abuse, it's like, oh my goodness, I could see the connection there. And there's allegedly a, a person named Willie Lynch. A lot of people think that maybe he didn't exist, but the, method, the methods that he put out there certainly are historically traceable. So if the man himself didn't exist, his methods did. And one thing that he boasted about is if the slave owners would put his, his uh, practices in place, he guaranteed that slaves would not only be under this control, but they would actually train their offspring to be under this control. They'd only have to do it once. And he says it'll last 300 years or more. And I, I look at some of the behavior in our community and I realize, my goodness, he certainly was accurate about that. Mm -hmm, definitely. And that is something that I find negatively impacts us to this day. It does. Those methods that were used to control us. Yes. And the mind enhancement techniques that you have implemented clearly is evidential that you can redirect some of that thinking. Absolutely. So can you give me one redirective thought? So a redirective thought is something that's really a challenge for those in our community, again, because of the Willie Lynch program or Willie Lynch-like programming that is traceable and you, know, you could find it historically, this was, this was done. And it's a matter of us putting our, our, our community first. We were taught in slavery to put our slave masters first. Oftentimes the female slaves that were of childbearing age and or lactating, they would have to breastfeed the master's children even before their own. And I find that it's really a struggle for black people to put their own people first the way other people groups put them their own people first. And so people like, I'll just say Koreans or Mexicans, they will buy from each other. They put their families first. They put people of their ethnic background first in a manner in which black people just don't do what we buy from anybody. We don't put each other first. We oftentimes will, will behave in, in manners that it's just downright embarrassing at times in how we don't stand up for one another. We, we don't stick together the way others do. And I think that's mm -hmm. a mindset that needs to be worked on the most. Like you're going to just think, you know, black first, African-American first, you're going to do that rather than like, well, I'm for everybody. Absolutely. And I think that's just a transnational issue that we are struggling with when it comes to colonialism and yeah. imperialism that right. was also enforced on us. Because when we start understanding who we are as people, that's the first thing that we have been stripped away of is our history and our identity. Right. And our ability to create community. I mean, there were so many laws when I was writing Reverse Slavery Curse, my book, my latest book, I was shocked at the sheer number of laws against creating community that were written against Black people. Like they, you couldn't have more than three at one time together, or it was, you know, it was punishable. If there was a church, there had to be a certain number of white people to oversee if you had more than like 10 people congregating. I mean, there were just raw rules that were written 
against us coming together and creating any sorts of community, talking with one another, building together. It was just strongly discouraged. Absolutely. And there's also articles written about the chemical restrictions that were imposed on us during the 60s freedom movement. And they called it drapedomania, which means that we were uprising against our slave master and they felt that we were mentally ill because of that. (laughs) So I find it interesting because those same laws are applied on the street when young people are gathering. Right. And they're told, hey, when there's three or more of you, you have to keep it moving. Exactly. Because then always people think it's suspicious. And it also happens in the workplace. Right. I've experienced that where I'm sitting amongst four or five women of color. And then the white woman would say, well, why are you all sitting together? Like, what's happening? Like, why is there a gathering? And like, What are you planning? What are you guys doing? What are you up to? Yeah. Yeah. And I thought, well, when you sit in the cafeteria and you're socializing with five not like white women, how come that's never questioned? But when you see the opposite, then there's something going on. So in terms of how we take that in and how we understand that in our own lens, I find that there's some trauma there too, because yes. then there's this thing of us and, you know, belonging and inclusiveness and being ostracized. Right. And then I'm seeing this happen again with COVID. So what have you noticed in terms of the techniques or if there are any techniques applied with, you know, people's health and wellness? I think it's really more of a practice and you, I guess you can call it that your technique. You have to make a conscious effort to break out of that. And I know that sounds really simplistic, but it's, it's really is that basic is you have to make a conscious effort to say, you know, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to separate. I have an example of, I have a, um, a couple of clients ago, I, I had a, a boss who's, who was black, who's African-American and she was tasked with creating a team. And she was a little bit nervous about some of her hires because her team of like, five people, three of the people were, were black. And she thought, she said to me during our one-on-one, do you think I'm, I'm being too bold and I'm hiring, you know, too many of us. And I said to her, it's never a problem for them. They'll hire entire teams of people who look like them, you know, the white people. And we were working for an Asian company and there were entire teams that were made up of Asian people and it wasn't a problem. And I said, hire the best person for the job. If it happens that three of your, you know, four hires happen to be African-American and they're the best ones for it, then you hire them and don't worry about how it looks. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I find that when we get into those leadership positions, again, the shifting of the mindset. So uh, is this something that we need to really start looking into ourselves and having a little bit more self-awareness? that when we get into these leadership positions that we might need to get some support there because of the subconscious actions and things that we do that make it look like we're not supportive of one another, but it's just the environment that we're in that causes us to change the way that we think. 
Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of it when you get to the higher level positions, it's the whole that you want to please the person who brought you into that role. So okay. you don't want to bring someone in that would make the person who hired you into that role look bad. And so oftentimes when it comes to hiring, it might be easier to just to go with a team that will reflect, you know, the person who hired you, who very likely probably wasn't you know, African-American who promoted you into that role. And it's just kind of like maybe kind of the toe in the water approach, just taking a slower approach, but doing something. I mean, it, it's every little bit helps. And I think when we just kind of fall into the, you know, the easiest thing to do, well, we just hire a team that looks like everybody else's team. That's just kind of taking the lazy way out. Mm -hmm. And we have to avoid that. We have to swim upstream. Absolutely. And I found it interesting that you mentioned, you know, for corporate clients, how do you find now in today's climate, corporations, do you find that they're seeking you out more just to really un understand and analyze their own team and how they build in terms of equity and diversity? And it was funny what happened last year with the whole George Floyd thing. I've had more recruiters reaching out to me more. I've had, I had a, a woman, she was actually a good friend of mine at the beginning of my career. I met her, it was my first job out of college and we've just stayed in touch. She called me and asked me if I felt that I had been discriminated in the workplace. And I was very honest with her. I mean, yeah, absolutely. There's a, there's a lot of discrimination in the workplace. I think the people who are able to be successful in the workplace just kind of know that this is a battle that you're going to have to fight. There's no getting around it. You just keep doing the best that you can do as far as being the best performer that you can be and just know that this is going to come along with, with the journey. And I, mm -hmm. and I explained that to her and, you know, she asked me if I felt that she had done anything that was, would be considered racist. And I was like, I, I, mm. She hadn't done anything to me that I would even consider racist, but she was just very aware because of what had happened. And her CEO at the company where she worked for basically reprimanded everybody there and said, you ought to be ashamed of yourself for not hiring more people of color. So that's when she was like, she wanted to reach out to me and, you know, just kind of get my take. But I think they're a lot more sensitive and a lot more aware because of what happened last summer. I don't know if it'll have long lasting impact. I certainly hope it does. But I think we as, as Black people need to start relying on ourselves and start doing what we can do. We, we can't take the easy way out. We have to swim upstream. It's not always fun. It, it can be uncomfortable. But that's what we have to do. Mm -hmm. And I agree with you definitely on trying to break that control and move as a unit towards a more desired outcome. Right. So do you find that this is something that we need to start promoting in our community and offering it as a course? Like how is, how does this get incorporated into our being? Because it has to be something that we can, you know, be aware of. It's always keeping the awareness, you know, in the back of your mind always, but it has to be the daily practice. It's the daily things that you do and it's the little things that you do. It's not always something major. It's not like getting a job and hiring people. I would consider that major. It's sometimes the little things. Maybe it's just you go out of your way to find a black owned business to do, 
you know, whatever you would just go to anybody else to do. If it's, you know, you need flowers for some occasion, rather than just going to the local florist that's easy to, to get to that you know, you know, is not owned by one of us, maybe it's seeking out a florist that is one of us. You know, it's, maybe it's paying a little bit more, you know, than, than you would have paid with somebody else. But it's really, really starting to, to patronize our own people to, to start using and buying from each other to, to help out each other the way other nations do. I think that's really the step and it's an everyday little, little thing kind of, kind of process. Absolutely. And how do you find in your community in terms of networking and community building, do you find that uh, things are really getting shifted into a positive direction in terms of racialized communities and communities where there are more people that are Black? It's kind of a mixed bag. I, I feel like it is getting more positive. I feel like a lot of us are waking up. One mm-hmm. thing I'd like to comment on is I, when I was looking, when I was writing Reverse Slavery Curse and I was looking over at the laws that were, were written in you know, the, the states, you know, within the United States, the laws that were written against Black people being able to get a business license or being able to work in certain professions or, or drive a certain type of vehicle. These were laws that were written specifically against Black people. They weren't written against white people or any other people group, only against Black people. And you have to ask yourself, the number of laws, I think I counted upwards of 70 specific African-American laws against us. I don't think those kinds of laws would have had to be written if we were just average everyday people. There's something really positive, unique, creative about Blacks that is not like any other people group. They would not have had to create Mm -hmm. these kinds of laws if we were just slouches. And I think we have been we've listened to narratives, false narratives about ourselves, and we've kind of gone along with it. We've gone along with the program, and it's why we've stayed kind of at the bottom. And I think when we wake up mm-hmm. and we realize they wouldn't be coming after us like this if we were really about nothing. We must be about something for them to have to go to this length to create these sheer number of laws only for us. And I think when people realize mm-hmm. that, and stop, you know, with the kind of adolescent mindset, I think it's going to change a lot. Absolutely. I agree with you. And for people that want to connect with you and find out more about how they can get your book, how can they connect with you? Well, there's a couple of ways. My website, Reverse Slavery Curse, it's all run together, no dashes or spaces, reverseslaverycurse.com. There's at the top of the web page, you can click on the connect button and there's a form they could fill out there and, and I'll, I'll get in touch with them. Also at the bottom of it, they could scroll down to the bottom of the page and join the mailing list. I don't send out too many mailings. I won't be spamming somebody every other day. So uh, that's another way. Mm-hmm. I also have a brand new YouTube page that I just, just launched. It's called Mind of Mashiach and Mashiach is spelled M as in Michael A. S-H-I-C-H. So it's just Mind of Mashiach. My goal is every Sunday, I'm going to try to load a video. I missed it this week. I was a few days late, but I've, I've hit two Sundays in a row. But those are the best ways to get in touch with me. That's wonderful because I'm definitely going to link into uh, your YouTube podcast now and learn some more. 
And you're listening to the Minds I Like podcast.